0: Amen. All right. My privilege to introduce our vision and administration pastor, Adam Kasel. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Before I jump in, I've got a few uh, fun things to share. Uh, first is our ministry team leader, one of them, uh, Delena Bradbury. Her birthday was this past week. So be sure to give Delana uh, a, a birthday wish if you see her. Another fun thing that happened this past week was our small, our, our our excuse me youth and small groups pastor Ian Ray married his fiance now wife Rachel on Friday. Yeah, so be be praying for them. Right, marriages can be challenging, especially new marriages, and especially if you're in ministry. So please be praying for them. Um, this past week. Kara Jones and my wife, Carrie, and I were at the Vineyard National Conference, and so I just want to share uh, a few things I feel like is probably is relevant for us as a church. Uh, f- first of all, as, as a movement, there's a lot of transition happening. There's a new national director who's going to be taken over, uh, Jay Pathak is his name, lots of influential pastors who've been a part of the movement either from the very beginning or very early on. They're at the age... Of retirement now. And so these churches, there's some change in leadership and, and often ch- transition means change. And the, I believe these are really good changes that are happening. These are thoughtful, spirit-led, I- intentional changes. They're not freak out changes. Um, and I think that's going to mean growth for the movement, maybe hopefully in numbers, but definitely in, in maturity um, across the board. And I heard some good talks. My favorite one was from the new Evanston Vineyard pastor, a guy named Ted Kim. He talked about how faithfulness is, is about rhyming. It's not about copying. So as we continue forward, does it sound like what's happened in the past? We don't have to copy it or replicate it exactly, but are we in, in step with what God has been doing in the past? And he, he believes that we're going to see some different aspects all the Holy Spirit that we haven't seen much in the vineyard. I, I think that's right. I do want to share kind of a fun, fun story. Um, Ted, Kim, and I have a number of connections, but I hadn't met him in person. And so at one point after one of the sessions, I just kind of made a beeline for him, introduced myself. And there's this thing that happens with pastors, especially at a vineyard, because you don't know what you're going to get when somebody comes up to you, somebody you don't know. There's this reflex Like, somebody comes up to you, you get a little defensive, you get into that wrestler position, and he had, I felt it, he had that, not quite physical, but held back a little bit. I just introduced myself, told him some of the connections, as I did, he starts, you know, relaxing, but what really melted him, what really melted him was, I was like, just so you know, Sierra Wingfield is from our church, and Sierra, we love Sierra. She's beautiful, a beautiful person. The Wingfields go to your church. I was like, "Yeah, we're best friends now, aren't we?" So, so fun, fun little connection there. But for those of us who know the, the Wingfields, um, that's not a surprise. That would have had an impact on on them. So, we are in a series where we are going through the greatest sermon. Ever preached. That's not opinion. That's not exaggeration. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, given by the most intelligent and influential person who's ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. Over the last two weeks, Randy's done a great job looking at what we have as Matthew 5, 1 through 20. And if you look at this sermon that covers three chapters in our Bible, at least one of the things that Jesus talks about touches all of our lives. There's something in there in that sermon that speaks to us directly. Now, the purpose of the sermon is to cast a vision for what life is like in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms can be used interchangeably. When Jesus walked among us, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God is, is present here and now. It's not in its fullness, but we do have access to it. This sermon shows us what life in that kingdom is like. This is Jesus's kingdom manifesto. It's brilliantly crafted. Each part of his sermon connects to what Precedes it and what follows it. I mean, Jesus isn't just talking off the top of his head. This is intentionally and intelligently crafted. There's four big questions that Jesus addresses in his message. I I believe Randy went through them a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to do it now. They'll they'll be in my notes on the website. So so look them up. But this morning we're going to see that the passage answers to those questions. One is. Who is the truly good person? Who is the truly good person? And how do you become a really good person? How do you become a really good person? And, and really that second question we'll be answering each week. And a reminder, Randy shared this, and I, and I 100% agree. Jesus actually wants us to put this into practice, This sermon is not just for intellectual assent or agreement. It's not to point out our need for Jesus. Jesus does that at other places, but that's not the purpose of this sermon. The hope of the gospel is that you and I can change. We can change with the help of God's grace that's available to us in Jesus, the Messiah. Also, the way Jesus ends his message is with this short parable in chapter 7, verses 23, 24 through 27, where he's talking about, you know, the person who hears his word and does them is the wise person who builds his house on a rock, right? That That sounds like somebody who wants us to do what he's teaching. Now, before... Looking at this passage, I want to ask us a few questions. Just answer yourself silently. First question, have you ever been angry? Second question, have you ever found yourself fantasizing sexually about someone you're not married to or fantasizing being married to someone else? Maybe not a different person, but that your spouse would be different. Have you ever gotten a divorce or thought about getting a divorce? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then Jesus' Jesus's words this morning are for you. So if you would turn with me to Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 20. Now, I know Randy looked at verse 20 last week, but it serves as context for our passage this morning. As a reminder, this is about who Jesus has in mind and with whom he's contrasting his teaching. So as I read this, let's hear Jesus' words this morning as joyful, kind, gentle, challenging, and invitational. He is not angry. He's not disappointed he's not impatient and he's not condescending last week randy talked about being salt and light and what we're going to look at this morning it, that's what it looks like this is what salt and light looks like remember just before this sermon jesus he's doing miracles he's demonstrating the external power of the kingdom of god over the dominion of darkness Now he's gonna show the internal power of the kingdom of God to help us live out the kingdom of light people that he rescued us to be. It's not just about doing outward signs. Those are good. They're necessary. It's also about experiencing inner heart transformation that impacts how we live. So before I read, receive these words from Jesus. If you're in Jesus... You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Are you ready? Matthew five twenty through 32. Jesus says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser. They hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks with lust has already committed adultery in his heart with her. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Let's pray. Jesus, We know that your words that I just read are for each one of us. There's wisdom and there's truth, there's life and love. And as we walk through this, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive what we need to this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, before I jump in, I just want to say this this passage and putting this message together challenged me significantly to look at my own heart. So what I'm going to say this morning, I've been saying to myself over the last couple of weeks, and I say to myself again this morning, this might be one of the most problematic passages in the whole sermon because we do what Randy cautioned us against a couple of weeks ago. We turn Jesus' words into a new law. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning or from whatever message you hear in this series, hear this. Jesus is not giving us a new law to follow, but a new way to live. Again, he is not giving us a new law. It's an invitation to a new way of life. So what is this new way to live? It's the possibility of having a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why I read verse 20. Now, if you're in the original audience, you're, you're confused right now. Because a couple of minutes ago, Jesus said, if you're in the kingdom You're blessed. And now he's saying you got to have a righteousness greater than the scribes or the teachers of the law and Pharisees. What in the world is Jesus saying here? This morning we're going to see that Jesus teaches true righteousness starts within our hearts. True kingdom righteousness that it exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not found in what we do. It's found in our hearts. When our heart is in the right place, the right actions will follow. But if we start with actions, the heart may not follow. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't because we get the positive reinforcement of the actions regardless of where our heart is. As humans, we want to focus on actions because they're manageable. I can see them. Churches, often focus on behavior modification, content, experiences, instead of heart transformation. As parents, we often fall into getting our kids to act right over knowing that they're loved and have immense value and helping them to understand their own heart. In our workplaces, productivity and behavior is what matters, and in that order, because you can be a world class jerk if you're really good at what you do. Stop being a good at what you do, you're not going to be around much longer. So, again, we'll see that Jesus teaches true righteousness starts within our heart. Now, the first area that Jesus talks about to reveal that righteousness starts within our heart is anger. Jesus reminds us of what the law says it says, Do not murder. Now, this is where many believers, worst of all, pastors and teachers, turn Jesus' words into a new law. They say something along the lines of, now that Jesus has lived among us, he's telling us that anger is just as bad as murder. No, he's not. Jesus knows they do not have the same even social implications. What he's saying is that murder starts within our hearts. Not murdering somebody is not the same as loving them. Imagine talking to your spouse or significant other at the end of your day. So how was your day? I didn't murder anybody. Right? That feels like base level expectations. A follow-up question would be, okay, but would you if you could have gotten away with it? Right? What Jesus is doing is he's exposing the fact that so many of us see anger as necessary for life and we can't imagine life without it. A question to ask ourselves is, if I could live without anger, would I want to? I'm serious. Ask yourself right now and be brutally honest. If I could live without anger, would I want to? I thought about this for myself, I'm not sure I would want to. And I don't consider myself an angry person. I don't like to get angry. And yet there's a part of me that believes it's necessary at times. So what do we fear we would lose if we gave up anger? Are we afraid that others would walk all over us? Do we consider that anger is just passion for life? how I know I'm alive and others do too. Do we believe that nothing changes if we don't get angry? Now, Jesus is not saying, okay, he, he is not saying that anger is a sin every time. Jesus himself got angry. And one of the things we believe is Jesus never sinned. Sometimes it's a spontaneous reaction. If somebody assaulted my wife or kids in any way, I'd be furious. Whenever our kids act like siblings to one another and they use unkind words and put hands on each other in unkind ways, I get angry. That's a great way for me to lose my patience with them because I know it's not good for their heart. They're going after one of their siblings who, oh, by the way, is also one of my kids. It's a perfect storm of anger for me. Another indication that Jesus is not making all anger a sin is what he says in what follows. He talks about calling somebody an idiot and cursing someone. And I read from the New Living Translation, I think that really catches the thrust of what Jesus is saying. He's speaking about contempt. Anger that leads to contempt for others. He's talking about when our anger causes us to dehumanize somebody else that's when it's a sin. That's when it leads to murder. Again, this is where murder starts. I don't think we, there's ever been a murder where somebody didn't have contempt for somebody else. It's easy to get there if we're not mindful of our hearts. See, it's easy to take another person's life or rights when we deem them as less than human. Slavery, both in this country and when it's existed around the world throughout history, is because one group has had contempt for another. The Holocaust happened because the Nazis had contempt for Jewish people, gypsies, homosexuals, and and mentally and physically handicapped individuals those and every atrocity actually starts within the human heart. Now, those aren't just things that happened in Europe or in years gone by, but today our country is probably as divided as as it's ever been, and contempt is the tool that's being used to drive a wedge between people. If somebody doesn't agree with you about the virus, the vaccine, the president, who it should be and how he's doing, they're less than human. It all starts in our hearts and having anger that leads to contempt. Jesus is letting us know this morning that it's possible to get angry without contempt. And oh By the way, it's also possible to not get angry. We have the power to choose not to get angry. And there's means available to us to train ourselves to respond without anger. At the risk of making myself appear better than I am, right? My trust in the Lord in this area was recently Tested now. Honestly, before I even share the story, I think I responded in the way I did because I was preparing this message. Two weeks ago today, we were going to be flying out uh, to Arizona, and our flight got canceled. And as I was standing in line, I made the conscious choice: I am not going to get angry. I'm not going to. The two young women who were working at the counter, neither of them canceled the flight. Right? Not not their fault. But as I had some time heading up there, I was frustrated, feeling a little stressed, talked with the representative, gave us some options, one of which was we could fly out to Vegas later that night. So Carrie and I were kind of scrambling, changing some plans, uh, figuring out what we needed to do. I get back in line, and I'm actually feeling a little more stressed, even though there was, I was told we had there were lots of seats available. Feeling a little anxious, oh, no, what if we don't get on this flight? What, what's going to happen? I'm about four or five people from the desk. The young woman who helped me gets out of line, comes up to me, says, are you getting on the flight to Vegas? I said, yes, we are. She goes back. She starts working on it. She's got other people in front, but she starts working on our behalf to change change the flight. Now, all that happened without anger and without contempt. It's possible. It's possible to do that. I did afterwards felt convicted about how stressed I was standing in line freaking out like oh my gosh are we going to get out there now the other side eight hours later when we were waiting in line to pick up our rental I was getting angry so you win some you lose some I didn't take it out on anybody kept it all inside Now, I don't have time to go over this, but the last part of Jesus' words on anger is about reconciling with another person instead of offering a sacrifice and doing whatever possible to avoid going to court. Now, again, because this isn't about a law, a new law, this is about really not having contempt for others in the midst of maybe not being able to reconcile a conflict and sometimes it may be necessary to sue somebody. What Jesus is talking about going to court is one person suing another person. What Jesus offers as a solution is agape love. That was pretty easy. So after talking about anger, we see that Jesus teaches Righteousness starts with our heart by addressing lust. Like murder and anger, Jesus is not putting lust on par with adultery. He is not saying that a person who lusts after somebody else is, in this, is the same as in engaging in an adulterous relationship. Like murder and anger, lust and adultery is a heart issue. It's not just about the physical actions that accompany an affair. Another reason that we know Jesus is not making this into a law is because he gives a ridiculous remedy for dealing with lust, gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. I'm relieved this morning to see such righteous people here having both their eyes and their hands. Yep. We know Jesus did not intend for us to actually do this. Sin is not found within our physical members. This is not how we enter the kingdom of God. Otherwise, in the words of Dallas Willard, we'd be rolling as bloody stumps into the kingdom of God. It's important that we define lust as Jesus is talking about it here. Lust is not physical attraction or desire, sexual desire. Both of those are good things. Without them, none of us would be here. I realize there's some exceptions, but the perpetuation of the human race is dependent on sexual desire and attraction. Sex is not a necessary evil, but it's a good gift from God to be fully enjoyed within the context of marriage. If I see an attractive woman and I acknowledge her beauty, I'm not in sin. If Carrie sees a a handsome man and acknowledges his good looks, she's in sin. (laughs) She's not in sin. We've been created to see and appreciate beauty. It's one of the reasons we have art. Being out west over the last 11 days, we got to see aspects of creation that we don't have here. Indiana's boring compared to Arizona. (laughs) But seeing and enjoying that beauty, it's a gift from God. Lust, though, is going beyond acknowledgement and appreciation of somebody else's beauty and lingering on their appearance. It's allowing our minds to entertain thoughts about that person and being with them. James Bryan Smith, author, professor, speaker, says, love looks into the eyes of another, but lust drops below the eyes to other parts of the body. Love desires the good of another. Lust uses others for our own personal pleasure and enjoyment. Lust is not only a male problem, though Jesus addresses males in this passage. And I'm going to come back to that. In general, in general, women don't lust the same way as men, but are guilty of giving into this sin, of being tempted by it and giving into it. Women can fantasize about how another man would treat them. The lustful, they would ha- have the lustful thoughts of, if only my husband did this or didn't do this, then our marriage would be so much better. Essentially desiring their husband to be another man. Lust, from a female perspective, looks at someone's boyfriend or husband and says, he's the perfect husband or he's the ideal husband boyfriend. No, he's not. He won't fulfill those desires and fantasies. And men, the woman with the perfect body or body part will not fulfill our desires and fantasies. We can't talk about lust without talking about porn. We have a porn epidemic. It's very real and it destroys our soul. And according to Jesus, that's the most important part of us. And it's easy to conflate lust and porn and to make them one and the same. They are not the same, but porn is the result and expression of lust. If you resist porn, you're not necessarily resisting lust, you're resisting porn. That's great. That's no small thing. And there's some here who would love to be able to just be able to resist porn. They didn't have porn in Jesus' day, and yet he warned his hearers to resist lust. Jesus is addressing men with lust and divorce, as we'll see in a little bit, because they're the more powerful gender. Not better, more powerful. In Jesus' time, if a man approached a woman, she essentially couldn't refuse him. Today, men still use power to exploit women and hold threats or promises over them to get what they want. Notice also, notice also Jesus is not addressing women on how they dress, but men on not lusting. If I lust over a woman, it is not because of the clothes she wears or her makeup or some other thing for me. It's because of my own heart. Men, men, our battle with lust is ours. It is not the women's to fight for us. We cannot outsource that. If you're married, husbands and wives, you partner together, you pray for that, be honest. They're hard conversations, but be honest. But it's not our wives the, and the other women in our church's battle to fight. It's ours. That's, it's part of the maturing process and learning to reign with Christ. Like with anger, we need to ask ourselves, if I could live without lust, would I want to? If I could live without lust, would I want to? Just like with anger, agape love is the solution. It's only going to get easier here. Jesus addresses anger and lust, then he moves on to a discourse in, in his discourse to talk about divorce and teaching that true righteousness starts with the heart. As I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus is a master teacher and each part of his message connects to the rest. There's a natural connection. Sorry, there's a hair. I don't know how that got there. There's a natural connection between anger, lust, and divorce. Anger and lust is going to put a strain on any relationship, especially marriage. I don't have any statistics on this, but I'm sure, I'm sure a vast majority, if not all marriages that end in divorce, it's ultimately because of anger and or lust, even if another reason is stated, the number one stated reason is finances. I would argue that anger or lust is actually underneath that. Because with finances, maybe one is angry, one spouse is angry with the other about being too strict or too careless with finances. Lust and finances would look like being, if, I, if only I was married to somebody who is more financially disciplined or forgiving, that would make my marriage so much better. I'm going to submit to you this morning that a couple who chooses and becomes the people who live without anger and lust have a far greater likelihood to have a happy and healthy marriage. And it would actually render Jesus' teaching on divorce moot. Take care of anger and lust. We're probably not even talking about divorce. Remember, the the premise of the Sermon on the Mount is that such a life is possible. And it's available to us here and now. To all who enter the kingdom of heaven by God's grace and his spirit working with our efforts. Now, unfortunately, we live in a world where both followers and non-followers of Jesus have unaddressed issues of anger and lust that lead to divorce. So Jesus's words are, are not a law, but they make, sorry, they're not a law that make divorce allowable under only one condition, infidelity, What Jesus is doing is he's protecting women who were a vulnerable group at that time. Again, Jesus references the law of Moses, which says that a man could divorce his wife if he gives her a certificate of divorce. Now, by Jesus's time, this was being abused. So men would give their wives a certificate of divorce because they found somebody younger or prettier or they were bored or any other reason. But because they were still giving a certificate of divorce, in their minds, they were still righteous. So Jesus is simultaneously allowing divorce, and he's putting constraints on it. Now, other recorded conversations shows that Jesus takes marriage very seriously. But we see it's not an insoluble bond. Like with lust, Jesus is addressing men to be able to protect women. He's saying you can't divorce your wife just because you want to. Now, there's other marriage issues that Jesus doesn't ex- explicitly address, most notably domestic violence. However, if Jesus doesn't want, to, want us having contempt for our neighbor then I think we can safely assume he doesn't want us abusing our wife or our kids if we address our personal anger issues I believe that takes care of domestic violence you may think I'm being overly simplistic but that's where it starts it starts within our heart with unaddressed anger Once again, Jesus gives agape love as the solution. Jesus addresses the question of who a good person is by saying it's one who's pervaded with God's agape love. So how do we become that good person? We apprentice ourselves to Jesus we don't do it by trying really hard. The way of Jesus is not the way of gritted teeth. It's the way of the easy yoke and light burden. Now, we don't overcome anger and lust by trying not to be angry and lustful. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I won't be angry, I won't be angry, I won't be angry, I will not lust, I will not lust, I will not lust. We overcome it by becoming the type of person who's able to control his or her anger and who overcomes lust. We do that by being filled with love. Because if we just try to get rid of anger, if we just try to get rid of lust, we've created a vacuum within ourselves, and something's going to fill it. So we fill it with love. Being an apprentice of Jesus is not just, it is part of this, it is not just loving and worshiping Jesus. It's doing the things that Jesus did. There are practices that we read in the Gospels that Jesus did. There are practices That have been developed throughout history that allow us to receive God's love. This morning, if your heart is being moved about your anger issue, a practice I want to submit to you is Sabbath. Now, Sabbath can be real simple it's a day of rest, play, and worship a Sabbath reminds us that we don't run the universe. It existed before us. It continues running while we sleep and will exist after us. And it's a reminder, our provision doesn't come because of our work, but because of God's love and care for us. Now, it takes time to integrate a Sabbath into our weekly rhythm and to find out what works best for our family. If you have young kids, you may feel like you don't get a Sabbath, but there's a way, a way to do it. I don't want to be too prescriptive because there, there is freedom. So I think if we try the principles of worship, rest and play, we'll find, we'll find out what it is that works best for us. what I think, what I know we'll see happen is that over time, you'll see you don't get angry as quickly or you don't stay angry for as long or you repent quicker. That's heart transformation. Be patient with yourself. Remember, it's taken your whole life to get to this point. It's not gonna change overnight. But God blesses our efforts. And I, I think we'll actually see our anger fall away quicker than we built it into our lives because that's grace. God loves, he, he's in the business of grace. If this morning you're being convicted about lust, I want to tell you there's a real option An opportunity to gain victory over lust. You don't have to continue giving into that temptation. God's grace is more than sufficient to help you overcome it. So, a practice to help with that is a media fast go off all media for 48 hours. It's possible. This has a twofold benefit for us. One, it removes a common source of temptation, and it builds those resistance muscles. If you've ever fasted, you know how there's a, a draw to that thing that you're abstaining from. There will be a habitual draw to social media. I'm letting you know right now. There's going to be a challenge. You're going to be tempted to just pick up your phone or tablet or whatever it is that you like to access, the social media. Because it's a source of comfort. So we have a choice. We can give in or we can resist. If we give in, there's no guilt or shame. Just start over. These practices, they're wisdom. They're not righteousness. You're not in sin if you don't do them or if you do them poorly. But once you make it, 48 hours with God's grace, you'll see that you can resist lust. Like anger, it's not going to change overnight because, again, you've spent your whole life getting to this point. But you'll see growth. You'll resist longer. You'll engage in the actions over a shorter period of time. And you'll repent quicker because, again, that's heart transformation. if you take up that little experiment of a fast, I think it'll give some time for the Lord to uncover triggers. What are the things within my life that makes me want to run to that? And then you'll be able to address those together. So friends, if you make a serious effort to apprentice yourself to Jesus, you'll see your need for him, his grace, and his spirit. Dallas Willard loved to say, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Effort is about action. Earning is about attitude. So our efforts don't earn anything with God. It's just our efforts to, to partner with him, to live the life that he desires for us. So this morning we saw that Jesus is teaching that true righteousness is found within our hearts. The common human issues of anger, lust, and divorce are seated within our heart, but they can actually be dealt with if we apprentice ourselves to Jesus and follow his way of life. As a reminder, the kingdom of God is among us and sets the captives free. So at this time, if the band could come up and and ministry team, we're going to go into our ministry time. I know we're kind of close to our time, but if the Lord's stirring up something, let's deal with it uh, this morning. So we cannot do this without Jesus. Today uh, is the day for some of us to do business with God. I believe he's been merciful with some of us here this morning in, in not treating us as our sins deserve, but that today is decision day. That we can make real, honest efforts to deal with it or the Lord will reveal it. And his agape love can come in partnering with you to deal with this issue or we'll experience the tough love of him dealing with it. And they, that's when these issues get exposed in ways that are a lot harder than if we partner with him. I did get a couple um, of words before coming up, one from Heather and just the reminder that it's not about rules It's not about the rules, it's about our heart. Lord just he wants our hearts. He wants us to give all of our heart to him. And from Stacy, the sense that the reminder, our past does not bind us. It reminds us of our need for Jesus, but it is not a prison. It does not hold us. In that place so if, if either of those resonate with you, invite you to come and get some prayer and, and anger and lust it, it grieves the Lord. This isn't not trying to bring guilt and shame but it, it really hinders our relationship with him and, and with one another. So if something's stirred within you, please come, come get prayer. You feel free to just kneel in front, but I strongly encourage you to go to a ministry team, go to Randy or myself. Let today be the day that you choose life. These sins, they eat at our soul, but there's life, grace, and love available to us this morning.